This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. In a strange way, my conservatory training was best used on In Living Color. Because In Living Color was really like being in a company, mm-hmm. an acting company. Mm-hmm. You know, one week it was your sketch. Then the other week you were a kid in somebody else's sketch. Mm-hmm. Week after that, you were an old man or a clown. I remember I did the to Clown sketch. I forget what my clown's name was, but he was supposed to be the best circus clown in the world. That was my clown. And it was when Homie joins the circus. Of course, he's angry, militant. I'm like, hey, Will's Homie, you got to get your laugh together, you know, like me. It was just really fun. David Allen Greer is amazingly funny. He's cracked us up on TV and in movies for decades, but he was a dramatic actor first. He went to the vaunted Yale School of Drama and first got noticed for his part in the off-Broadway play A Soldier's Play, which became the legendary movie A Soldier's Story. If you haven't seen it, you got to see that, which is now a Broadway play starring Greer. The guy can do anything on stage, which is why I had to talk to him about the stage and his philosophies around acting. He's a brilliant guy and he does not disappoint. Before we dive in, this is the Patreon era of Toray Show where we do two episodes a week. Yes, on this episode, free listeners will get the first 30 minutes of my interview with David Allen Greer. And if you want to support the show and what me and my team are doing and also get the whole 60 minutes of this episode and the Friday Patreon exclusive app, Join us at patreon.com slash show. That's patreon.com slash show. If you join us on the $5 a month tier, you'll get the full version of our Wednesday interviews and the Friday Patreon exclusive episode. And that is Mark Lamont Hill talking about playing basketball with Kobe Bryant or Joy Bryant talking about going to the supermarket and buying whatever she wants because she ain't poor no more. Coming up, we got amazing interviews with Joe Budden, Morris Day, and a surprise special episode. We got a great booker, so we got a crazy lineup. So please support the show and join us at patreon.com slash show for some amazing Patreon-exclusive episodes that come out on Fridays. As for this one... It's time for one of the funniest men around. It's David Allen Greer on Torre Show. Soldiers play. Mm-hmm. Back at it for, this is your third time doing the play? 
Uh, second time doing the play. And third the, time doing the project. Because you did the movie. Well, I went into the original production. I took over for Larry Riley. I played CJ Memphis for about six months. And that was with Sam Jackson and Adolf Caesar and Denzel Washington. Heard of him? Yeah, you know, Sam. Jim Pickens was in that. People know him from Grey's Anatomy and Brent Jennings. And so then uh, Adolf. Denzel and Larry and I, we all did the movie. The movie was so powerful. Yeah, that was uh, uh, Norman Jewison. But, you know, they changed the ending in the movie because Norman wanted it to have a happy ending. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the movie we go to war and it's like, yeah, we're, you know, I'm going to make a change. But, you know, and the play doesn't end like that. Mm. Everybody's wiped out. <laughs> Well, that's what it, that's the final irony. I mean, it seems to me an interesting piece that points out, oh, you thought it was white racism, but it was not. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, that's one of the things I really always loved about it, that there are all these different points of view and different, you know, all these black heads arguing and fighting. And, you know, when you go through it and we perform it, you can hear the audience kind of. Uh, form allegiances with different characters for different reasons. You know, sometimes there's a bunch of people that are down with the Sarge, you know, and, uh, well, sure. you know, other times it's CJ and, you know. So does the, does the, does the piece make the audience fool themselves or are we like too quick to, to, too quick to latch on to like, you know, Oh, see, like that's that's my guy. That's my perspective. And then when it flips, it's like, oh, see, I was wrong. No, maybe they don't think they're wrong. I mean, I don't know. You're asking me what the audience thinks. I can't tell you that, but I just can tell you that we can hear their response in the evening as the evening goes on who, you know, they're aligned with. You know, you can tell it's never the same because every audience is different. So. Well, what do you think is the enduring power of this particular story that you can get it up three times? Well, I I mean, I think. And it's iconic. It's iconic. Well, it's a great role, you know. And like anything, you know, I just saw Wendell Pierce do Death of a Salesman. Um, You know, Soldier's Play has never been on Broadway, which even I I thought it had been on Broadway Uh, since it was done. You know, I think they did a revival, but that was on second at second stage. I think Anthony Mackie was in that a while ago. Maybe I didn't see it, so I don't know. But uh, so that was one of the enticing things. I love working with Kenny Leon, and it fit in my schedule. So. I mean, and you have a central role in this one, mm-hmm. playing the Adolf Caesar role, which yeah, was so Waters. so yeah. powerful. Is he a villain in this? It depends on your perspective, right? Some people think he is. Some people don't. You know, uh, it is a tragedy. I mean, of course, it is a it is a classic tragedy. But um, uh, yeah, so it's just fun. It's a great role. Like uh, it, it just kind of happened that this all fell into place because you know it's pretty rare to have a play bought and transferred to cinema so quickly because. It was almost like a year and a half later where they had sold it. Because I know that by the time I got in the cast, you know, Norman had come to see it several times. And it was reported, you know, that the rights had been sold. But usually that takes forever. 
You know, um, no, he uh, uh, turned it around and they got a script. Charles Fuller wrote the script and we were down there in Arkansas, man, shooting. Yeah, so it happened real quick. It was powerful. It was mm-hmm. powerful. It really knocked me out the first time I saw the movie. I think I was a teenager. I think they showed it to us in school. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. You know, I remember when... We first saw it and Adolf called me that night. He was really, he didn't like it. You know, I didn't either. Because, you know, it's hard to watch yourself. And uh, in a film context, you're seeing another person's uh, perspective of the piece. That's that's the very nature of filmmaking. It's, it's funny. Kenny said this the other night to the cast. He said, you know, in a play, the actors have the last word. Because, you know, he goes away. The director goes away on opening night, and we are left to run this play. Um, The cinema, no, it's the director. They can sculpt your performance and, you know, put a little bit of this take with that take and just really edit it and hone it to be exactly what they feel the piece should say. I mean, Norman Jewison talked about the ending. I mean, we all wanted it in there, but he just felt, uh, you can't send the audience out after building all this hope up and say, you know, this is what happened. But I, to me, I always thought that was the whole point, that war is futile. Mm. It's a futile endeavor. I, I, I appreciate talking to you about this piece, which is tragic. Mm-hmm. So many people think of you as a funny guy and you are hysterical. You were mm-hmm. making me laugh doing nothing before we started, but you right. are a classically trained Yale drama school guy who can do the serious pieces. And you were a serious guy before you started doing the comedy. I was. I remember the first uh, auditions in New York after I'd done, like, I had done this musical, but it was about Jackie Robinson. And I'd done just these things. I'd done streamers and soldiers story and that kind of stuff. And they were like, David's not a comedian. He's not funny. So, you know, so that I had to convince him I was funny. And then, you know, now you have to convince him you're serious. I think it's easier now for actors to go and traverse. If you're hot, if people want you, then you could do anything. So, But you have the serious training. A lot of funny people... Mm you know, we're doing stand-up, you know, or maybe they came from sketch and they get in front of the camera and they, you know, do their thing. Right. I I know I came of an age where the people I admired had conservatory training, you know, Meryl Streep and all those guys. Uh, So that's why I went to Yale, the Yale Drama School. That's why I wanted to go because that was, at the time, it was that or Juilliard or something. So... I auditioned for Julie. I didn't I didn't get in. I don't think I was ready. I had not really taken any acting classes, but I was living in New York. I dropped out of Michigan and I came here as a musician. You know, I had guitar and I used to write songs and stuff. So that's really what I wanted to do. But that while I was here in uh, New York that year, I worked in this haagen ice cream store on 86th Street. It was 86th and 3rd. And this is like 75, 74, 75. So haagen was like Ben and Jerry's back then. <laughs> it was just some old white dude who invented the name. It doesn't mean anything. They're from New Jersey. But yeah, <laughs> man, but people, people would be like going crazy for this ice cream. It is good ice cream. 
Yeah, 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 it was. I mean, but at any rate, so I worked there, and I was just really tired and bored. And this guy came in with his girlfriend, and they said something to me, and I got up, up, up on the counter, and I just started performing. And so he goes, you are an actor. And I had not really ever considered it before that moment. And he said, you really are. And they would come in all the time. He, he came back the next day and he gave me uh, his card. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to my agent and you should uh, do this. This is your life. And he, uh, in fact, took me to his girlfriend at the time, was all working on a soap opera. They had gone to Neighborhood Playhouse, Stanford Meisner. And I went and I applied and had a meeting with Sanford, Sandy Meisner. And they let me in, but I didn't have any money to go. Uh, I had his haagen money, you know. So I remember his girlfriend um, offered to pay my tuition, you know. But at that point... I really wanted to go back to Michigan. My friends were still in college. I was kind of done with the city. And uh, I knew it would be here when I came back and my music stuff. And so I decided to go home. But when I went back to Michigan, that's really where I started acting. But that guy. Who is that guy? I forget his name, man. But uh, I have it written down because when I got out of school... And I got my first professional job, which was starring in this Broadway musical. He came to see it. And he and his son, he had a son this named This is a Derek. Hollywood story. I swear to God. I, I forgot all about this. I haven't told this story in a million years. A real sweet guy, you know. And uh, he goes, he brought his son. I remember they had a spider monkey on the Upper West Side <laughs> in this big cage. And I was like, damn kind of monkey and stuff, you know, but he was, he was really cool, man. He was really the dude. He was the dude who said, you know, I know what you are and you're wasting your life here. You're wasting your life in this ice cream store. And I said, okay. I mean, he said, I'm not trying to hit on you. I'm not trying to do, this is not, I'm being absolutely serious. So I, I went and I met his agent and that's why I went over to, the neighborhood playhouse. She said, you know, you have to get some training and these are the schools that are good, that are bad. And, uh, this is what I would suggest. And they were really kind to me. So and he saw something in you that in you that were not moment, able to see. No, but when, you know, when I talk to young people all the time, I tell them all that that's who you want in your corner. Someone who sees more in you than you see in yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't need people in the, your corner going, yeah, this podcast is too much, dog. You need to stay home. <laughs> you know what? You should sleep later. Don't read so much. You know, that kind of stuff. You don't need them people in your or corner. Or just co-signing the dreams you already have. Because he saw yeah. more. Yes, man. I was 19. I mean, I wanted to back then, you know, I wanted to get an album deal. You know, singer-songwriter stuff, you know, that all that kind of stuff in the 70s. That's really what I wanted to do. And I was performing every night and, you know, coffee houses and stuff down in the village and stuff. But uh, I was also ready. You know, after like a year of that, I realized, you know, dudes I was performing with, they'd been there for 10 years, man, you know, and they were still scuffling. So I uh, wanted to go back to school while my friends were still there. Then I figured, you know, New York's not going anywhere. 
some will be here. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. When you got to Yale, or to start mm-hmm. about Yale, like, what did you learn about acting in yourself at Yale? Um, well, it was just a time for me to woodshed. I mean, when I went to visit Yale, there was a guy that I went to Michigan with named Bill Armstrong, and he was a lighting designer. And again, he said, you know, I think the school you should really go to, you should really go to Yale. At that time, they only let in like 12, 13 kids a year. Hundreds applied. Plus, I was black. And so I applied. Then my roommate at the time, Reg E. Cathy, he applied Mm. too. He was only 19. I think he was the youngest student they ever admitted. 
And uh, I found out later that Norma Brustein, who is the dean's wife, and she was our first year acting teacher at the time, told someone, she said, you're never going to believe this. I found two black actors today and their roommates. And I think they're both going to get in. We didn't, you know, we just did it. It was like we were doing plays at Michigan. We had this theater company that was started by a friend boyfriend. So we were all doing just buck wild renegade stuff. That was when we got our really blackness on, you know, <laughs> five on the black hand side. We were doing Ed Bullens, all that stuff. It was bootleg and it was really, uh, we'd commandeer space, uh, throw up posters and just go for it. Yeah. People came. I mean, it was called the back alley players. Ron O.J. Parsons, it was the really the the guy behind it. And he and I are still friends now. You said you were woodshedding at Yale. What did you learn about acting? Um, well, it was the craft of acting. I remember I saw this play at the public theater. George Zunza was in it. And it was about these policemen in this small, like uh New York precinct. So in the process of this performance, I was almost sitting ringside. It was in one of the small theaters in the public. At the high point of the play, where they have this suspect, and they're grilling him, and they're, you know, they have him there. He steals a policeman's gun, and he turns it on them. And when this actor took the gun, and it was all this tension, the gun just exploded, meaning the barrel fell off, the bullets came out, uh, the gun just fell apart. And so... As actors, they had to put the gun back together because that was the prop and then proceed with the drama. And in that moment, I remember I was watching both of these actors were incredible. It gives me goosebumps to think about that moment. But in that moment, I said, this guy is a really good actor. And I pointed to George Zunz. I said, but that's a policeman. So that's what I wanted. I wanted to be that guy. So that even in that moment, I was six feet away from him. I said, man, this is a policeman. That's a really good actor. And you wanted to be? The policeman guy. Because he was complete, totally transformed. I didn't question it. I didn't. You know, so so that moment taught me something. But you have to do things. It's like Malcolm uh, Glad Gladwell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Martin Gladstone has said, <laughs> you know, you got to do He's your 10,000 hours, mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. So w- when I went to visit Yale, you know, with my friend Bill, uh, what I saw was a totally artistic environment. So from sunup to sundown, they did theater. They were in class during the day. Then we went to the theater at night. After the theater, there was a cabaret. After the cabaret, there was something else. That's where I wanted to be. So it was all theater. It was all art. It was all creating. And I'd never been in an environment like that. You know, at Michigan, I was allowed by my mom to take certain theater classes, but she didn't want me to major in theater because that was not a viable profession. Hmm. So my undergraduate degree is in radio, television, and film with a minor in journalism. But I was doing, all I was doing is acting, but that's the closest she would pay for, you know? So that was our deal. (laughs) But then Yale was totally on my own, you know? I mean, I remember reading the catalog. It said, no student will be denied. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I admission because of financial concerns. Once I read that, I showed that to my boy Reggie. I said, we in, man. Let's go, man. So <laughs> got in, cobbled together some scholarships and fellowships. And, you know, there's people that find all those things. Once we actually got in, then that's what was happening. I know for me, that's what it happened. I, I don't know what Reggie's deal was, but yeah. If you love Toray's show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a Black and progressive perspective. This fight tonight is only a preview of the Game of Thrones... Uh... Scarface! Okay. Say hello to, to my, my little, little friend. friend. <laughs> ooh, ooh, what if Mike Bloomberg is the little friend? Oh, shit. <laughs> you can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre Show. You talk about admiring the transformation. So is that mm-hmm. what you're able to do now? Um, I hope so. You Like I said, I know what my goals are. I mean, I, I know no. I believe you. Yeah, but again, I you know you have to talk to audience members uh, about a, compl- a certain experiences, but you know how they come out of a theater or a movie or, or, or you know how they are affected. But that's the goal. I know that as a as an actor, as a fan, you know people paid money and they come into a space and they want to be carried away. That's why they're there. Right. Whether it's comedy, spoken word. Um, the moth, mm-hmm. we all want to be transported. So that is our job. Well, what is the difference between acting and transforming yourself? Well, it's all a part of it. But but sometimes what I'm saying is, is you know, a, a total transformation to me is when that person just becomes that character. So we as observers no longer are looking at... Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, Robert De Niro do a gangster. It's just a gangster and you've accepted it and you are on the ride with them. You know, they are your uh, conduit into this new world. How did In Living Color come about? And really, how did you get from doing the serious stuff to then mm-hmm. being seen as a funny guy? Well, when when we got cast in Soldier's Story, the film, my uh, uh, dressing room mate, usually you have your own dressing room, but back then, you know, I remember the budget from the first Soldier Story was $6 million. Oof. Uh, of course, this was 83 and I met Robert Townsend. Wow. So he came in to the hotel. He knew Denzel really well. And uh, Denzel and I had hotel rooms next to each other with a, with a joining door. Robert came in and he, to me at that moment, I thought he was the funniest dude I'd ever seen. And like he was doing all these characters and he would be like, oh yeah, that's my boy Damon. That's his character, Mo Money. So that was one of the characters that Damon ultimately did, Antoine, you know, and a homeless guy. And he would do some more. He'd say, yeah, that's his brother. This is Keenan. He told me how they were going to do their own film company. It was going to be B-Boy Productions or something like that. And I was just transfixed. I was like, damn, man, I need to get down like this. So we did the movie. We became really good friends. I came out for pilot season. And that's when I met the Wayans. I met Damon, who was as skinny as Marlon. And by the way, Damon always had kids. I never knew him without <laughs> kids. Like, seriously. Uh, um, so Damon, I met Keenan and Kim. Um, and we were off and running, man, you know. So I had a series. I got the series called All is Forgiven in like 86. It was the Charles Brothers. This is their first series after Cheers. And again, I was at the Ferrari dealership, man. This is it. That ran for a billion years, you know. I played the black dude and I was a TV repairman. And we all worked on the worst soap opera on the air. You know, that was like a failing soap opera. That was a premise. I would hang out with Robert and those guys and we'd be in comedy clubs all night because that's what they did. So instead of going to bars, that's where we went. I went to the improv. I went all over the Comedy Act Theater. I saw Robin Harris, mm. uh, Paul Mooney, mm. all those dudes, you Legend. know. So finally, after a certain point, they just dared me. It was like, you can't just hang out with us. You have to get on stage too. So I started performing for fun. I started performing. So... In the meantime, and Living Color was brewing because we'd all done I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, which was a movie that Keenan did before. And everybody is offered the same thing. I tell, again, I tell students this. When, once you get hot, you know, you get that first break, you're all offered the same thing. What do you want to do? Do you want to write a book? Do you want to, you want, you want a TV show? Do you want to do a movie? Do you want to do a play? It's your decisions you make. So since Eddie Murphy was first on Saturday Night Live, this was always the fantasy. Wow, what if there were a black Saturday Night Live? Mm. That's really was, that was out there. What if we had an all black cast and it was Saturday Night Live, you know, a sketch show. So uh, Keenan was the dude that brought it to fruition. So when he did, after I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, he was offered the same choices and he said, I'm gonna do this, which was, in living color, 
So he called me and he said, we knew each other from hanging out. He said, you know, people don't really know how funny you are, David. I want you to, I want you to come on this cast. And I really said, no, I said no two or three times because I just felt like that's, you know, because I didn't really, I did comedy for fun. I never went on the road. I would just do three, five minute spots, you know, throw shit up there. And they were all there. I mean, I have a tape at home of when I, one of the first times I went up and it's Keenan, Robert and Damon yelling notes, you know, your premise isn't long enough. Do the punchline again. Go back to that. You know, as I was like struggling through. So he saw all that. Um, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't like those guys. I didn't have a, a, a pocket full of characters. I hadn't been, you know, they've been kicking it for five, seven years. They've been on the road. I mean, they were all, you know, they're of that milieu. So I'd moved back to New York. And this was after, I must have, that year of Living you Color. You said no to In Living Color and moved back to New York. Yes, because I'd done a few pilots. None of them really, you know, you do a couple shows and then it goes off the air. Um, I came back to New York and then we auditioned again. So I remember I did a callback with Chris Rock, Martin Lawrence, me, Susie Essman, Mm. you know, where we just do improvs and stuff. And I knew I was going to get the formally get the uh, contract. And I just was like, no, I can't do this. And Kim Wayans called me and she said, you're really making a mistake. This show is going to be great. And, you know, she just talked me into it. Like it was, you know, jumping me in a religious cult. And I was like, okay. And because what I was going to say is before is that season, I must have auditioned for 25 pilots. And I got to a point in my career where the casting person would be like, it's for, you know, it's for a Filipino little person, but we'll bring David in. You never know. Maybe they'll go a different way. You know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, I was just tired, you know, and my agents didn't want me to do it. But I knew that in Living Color was where my friends were. At least that would be fun. So out of just frustration, I said, what do I have to lose? I'll do it. And the rest is history, man. It you sure know? is. I, I mean, saw Tommy. I'd met Tommy. I must have met Tommy, Tommy Davidson. Yeah, like days after he got to L.A. We talked about that the other the other day when we were doing a gig. I mean, the, folk, the younger folks may not re- realize it was Tommy Davidson, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, who Jim and Damon did. It was Earth Girls Are Easy. Mm-hmm. Was this big movie at the time? I think there were aliens, so he really got to know Jim. They loved Jim, and they were good friends. And J-Lo, the same with Jim. J Lo was dancing. She was eighteen with a uni brow. <laughs> yeah, back when she was dating Puerto Ricans. <laughs> you were saying about Carrie, Jim Carrey. Uh yeah. Well, they loved him, you know, Jim. And again, Jim Carrey had had his own series. You know, a bunch of stuff. He hadn't flopped. He had a development deal that hadn't really worked out. So we were all looking to get free. That's all, you know, to do our thing, just to have some freedom and just do what we wanted to do. And I mean, you started, provided that. You started to see then the plastic fluid nature of Jim <laughs> and his body. Well, Jim used to, you know, when we were doing Living Color, I was like, my dream was, I used to tell Jim, I said, man... If I ever win the lotto, I'm going to give you $5 million to do the Jim Carrey movie just for me. 
Because I never thought America was ready for Jim. He used to, when we play around, he would do uh, Colon Man. And Colon Man was a dude who pulled his large intestines out of his ass and he would lasso uh, bandits. And he had powers. Like he could go, you know, he could, he could throw his you know, colon across the street and climb up buildings and we would be dying. And I was just dying. I was like, please, Jim, please. I would just, we would just do stupid shit. We would sit in the room, Jim and I, and we'd do the mating call of the albino sea lion. <laughs> <laughs> And we just bust out laughing. We just go on and on and on and on. You know, just dumb stuff like that. But a lot of the humor of In Living Color started like that. Like Fire Marshal Bill and, you know, uh, Calhoun Tubbs, all that stuff. Let's talk about Calhoun Tubbs because he Mm -hmm. was your character. Yeah. He was a great old blues player. Mm -hmm. And he would always say... Uh, I wrote a song about it, like the head, head go. <laughs> but you know, I didn't have a character at first because immediately when it started, you know, all the comic comics, they were like, "Yeah, I'll do," you know, garbage can man that's been killing in the clubs. I'll do this. I'll do that. And Damon came in my room, my dressing room, and he said, "Listen, man, you have to come up with a character." So we broke it down and and kind of uh, he helped me really write that first character. It was based on a guy named Shaky Jake, who was from Ann Arbor. That's where I went to school. He was a horrible blues player. He had no talent. He was basically (laughs) bumming money with the guitar. You know, he was like the mascot of all these white kids. You know, we'd be there. Did you know Robert Johnson? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay. And he just bang. He never tuned his guitar. So that was the dude. That was what it was based on. And um, from there, I was off and running, you know. I mean, I, I watched the show from the first episode. Mm-hmm. I remember watching Homie the Clown, yep. which was Damon Wayans' character, which mm-hmm. was, those sketches were extraordinary. And being taken by, wow, they have really transformed into children. Mm-hmm. And the previous sketches, they were clearly adults, and I know they're adults, but I fully believe they are children and not mocking children and not playing children down the way some Mm -hmm. actors do, but like, wow, they're like, you know, and then what's funny (laughs) is that, uh, in a strange way, my conservatory training was best used on in living color. Cause in living color was really like being in a company, Mm -hmm. an acting company, Mm -hmm. you know, one week it was your sketch then the other week you were a kid in somebody else's sketch. Mm-hmm. Week after that you were an old man or a clown. I remember I did this homie the clown sketch. I forget what my clown's name was, but he was supposed to be the best circus clown in the world. That was my clown. And it was when homie joins the circus. Of course, he's angry, militant. I'm like, you <laughs> well, homie, you got to get your laugh together. You know, like me. <laughs> this you know, and so it was just really fun when we would just just get into these characters and just go with it. Thanks so much to David for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Join us over at patreon.com slash Show for more from David like this. When we did the family scene, 
And John Witherspoon was Wait, my, Wait. yes, may he rest in peace. He he was my parents. And that was Eddie. He said, what if, because you're so straight, your character's so straight, your parents would be some ghetto ass motherfuckers. So I said, okay. So John was in there and, you know, they're serving chitlins, the whole thing. That scene was written. And I, I was Don't, sitting nobody there. Nobody's going to the bathroom. Right. For 35, but, 45 minutes. Uh, I said, what is the most demeaning thing that could happen is if your parents... It had a quickie in the bathroom. <laughs> so Eddie was sitting next to me and I whispered to him just that. I said, what if they had a quickie in him? And he fell out laughing. That and more right now if you join us at patreon.com slash show. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our booker is Claudia Jean. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.